For me, being an artist is not what you do, but how you do it. It's a way of experiencing life. It's a way of problem solving. It's a way of thinking. You don't have to be an object maker. You don't have to be a painter or a musician to be an artist. It's, it's a way of interacting with the world around you. Hello and welcome to AI Arts In, the podcast produced by Creative Pinellas. I'm Barbara St. Clair, your host, and I am here today with Mark Ayling, who is a sculptor and arts leader in Pinellas County. Mark, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. How would somebody look at a sculpture and say, yes, that's a Mark Ayling work? Well, um, that's a good question because my, my work tends to be very diverse and you know one of the first things that that someone asks you when they meet you and, and discover that you're a sculptor is is what is your medium and for me that's a difficult question to answer because i work in whatever material solves the challenge at hand most effectively and part of it is born from figuring out how to make a living making things. And I've been making things for a living since I was a sophomore in college. That My last job that was non-creative was delivering pizzas. Wow. In, in <laughs> my sophomore year of college. So um, I have uh, always been a maker, an, an object maker in particular. And that that has created a way of, of seeing and problem solving that's very material-based. And, you know, there are, there are certain themes that run through my work mm -hmm. consistently, but how they're executed and how, how I manifest them is, is widely diversified depending upon the variables. With commission work, you have a client that you're working with, either a location or a concept, or there's something that they're bringing to the table. So there becomes a collaborative process there where you have your ideas and things that you want to get across and you're working within the structure of their, the boundaries that they create. And that puts a certain flavor on how you express yourself. So there's certain work that's influenced by those variables and then there are pieces where I'm just making for fun. I was very fortunate to receive the fellowship from Creative Pinellas last year and that gave birth to a couple of pieces. And those pieces are just combining many years of experience and, and ideas and interests and then picking something to focus in on and, and uh, execute. You said something that perked my ears up, which was that there's theme that runs through your work. There's several themes. Some of them are very conscious and intentional. The inherent mathematical forms found in nature, these growth processes. I'm fascinated by the golden means and by Fibonacci sequence and how the Greeks have studied nature to the point where they found these recurrent patterns and, you know, our uh, culture, our society evolving from that construct. There is a mystery that can be unraveled about life that is inherent in that. And as a sculptor, as someone who is trying to share some connection to something greater than yourself, that to me, there, there's truth in those things. So if you can shed light on them, if you can expose them to, to yourself and share that with someone else, 
then you're getting it at something. One of those things that makes you, gives you a sense of purpose. So can you describe one of your pieces that was exploring that? And well, uh, there's a, a commission piece that I did called Budding Vortex. And it's a combination of investigating that. It's based on a flower bud and it's a five leaf structure. So it's taking that concept and then marrying it with this interest in materials and one of the biggest challenges with public art is creating something that's durable and something that has a sense of presence and can be as big as possible for the budget that you have. Because you, know, you make something in your studio, it's 20 feet tall, it seems huge. You take that out and you put it in reference to a building that's six stories high, it gets dwarfed. Size is, is, the perception of size is relative. You know, proportion is, is critical to that. So one of the big challenges with public art is how can I get as much bang for my buck out of materials, you know? So the process for making that piece was trying to manifest the greatest extent of my ability, my material usage and efficiency, and still communicate a concept or idea and, and the concept or idea in that particular piece was that idea of five is a, a number in the Fibonacci sequence. And you find it in all sorts of organic forms. Basically, how the Fibonacci sequence goes, you take the first number, zero, and you add it to the second number, one, and you have one. You take one and one, you add it together, you have two. You take one and two, to, you add them together, you get three, then you get five, then you get eight, so on and so forth. These number sequences are repeated all through nature, and the Greeks took it one step further with the golden means, and that's a, a growth ratio proportion, and the Parthenon is based on this, this growth ratio. That's if you study a nautilus shell, the, how the growth cycle of a nautilus grows is based on, on that golden ratio or golden means. Um, so all these things are tied together, and I guess it's an investigation into trying to understand, you know, what life is and why we're here and all those good things. So what would somebody see when they see that sculpture? Well, in that particular piece, there, there's a number of, of levels or layers of games that I'm playing with that piece. And, you know, light is critical to sculpture because light is what, what illuminates volume. And, you know, without light, you just have empty space. You know, we're talking about visual art and sculpture is a visual art form. So I'm playing with that material, which is aluminum, powder-coated aluminum this, in this case, and I put in a, a lighting system in that aluminum, so at night it reads differently than at day. Um, one side of every plate of aluminum in that piece is a different color than the sides and the, and the tops of every one of the, those pieces. So when sunlight hits it, it bounces off of that color and it creates sort of a glow in the piece and I've used a really, really bright day glow orange on the underside of it. So I'm playing with color, um, I'm playing with light um, to help communicate and to create uh, layers of meaning or interpretation. It's one of the things that, that you'll find frequently in my work is, uh, one, I love a good pun, um, and two, uh, I love multiple readings, um, things that look like one thing and then you discover that there's something more there or that there's something greater to discover. And that sense of discovery is, is really critical. So, so give me an example in your work of the pun and also the, the Easter egg, the secret thing you find. Well, there are a couple pieces that are based on that, and, and one of them is called Butterfly Kiss, 
And that's a play on that, uh, that idea or concept that we all experience as a kid of having someone blink their eye near our cheek and feel their eyelashes brush against those very sensitive nerve endings. And I'd done a few pieces where I had made things out of other things. And I came up with the idea of taking butterflies and we water jet cut 660, I think was the total count. Uh, and when I say we, I, ha I have a team of guys that help me fabricate pieces. So it's a fairly traditional uh, artisan-like studio with apprenticeship kind of, kind of structure that you find all the way back in Florence. So when you see the piece, it looks like a giant pair of lips. And as you get closer to the, the object, you realize that those lips are made up of this series of butterflies. And we worked very hard at creating a narrative with the piece so that there are other objects, butterflies, floating around the perimeter of the piece. So it begins to tell a story. And at that point, it becomes about the collective unconscious because you have this group of butterflies. And through doing this, I discovered that a group of butterflies is actually called a kaleidoscope. Wow. Which is really wonderful. Yes. Like a flock of birds. It's a kaleidoscope of butterflies. So you have this kaleidoscope of butterflies that have come together to form this uh, volumetric image of lips that they're communicating. And they are telling the story of the butterfly kiss. So that's functioning on a variety of, of levels. And whether every viewer sees all of those layers there is, is for them to either discover or discard. And then I created another piece in relation to that piece called A Cutting Remark, which is another play on words. And it's 1,500 pairs of surgical scissors that form together the same lips. When did you know in your process that you were going to do the second lips? Um, I, I had absolutely no intention of doing a second iteration of the piece when I first started. And this is where I, I had said there are certain conscious themes that run through my work. There's un, or subconscious or unconscious themes as well. And I have found myself with a preoccupation with scissors. And I've been collecting scissors for many, many years. And I don't know why I do it. Uh, I'm, there's something about scissors that fascinates me. Um, and I've tried to define it. And I could tell you what I think it is. But more importantly, um, exploring with them uh, sheds more light on it or gives me more clues. You know, I think that there are certain aspects of what it is to be human that are undefinable and that we search through our entire lives to try and gain some sense of understanding um, or meaning for what those things are. Some of them are very obvious and, and we have layers of realization as we experience life. And you know, it's very much what wisdom is all about, is gaining those layers. But um, some of them, I think, you know, may never be revealed to us. And I may never know what the scissors are all about. Um, but uh, I was at an estate sale and I saw a bucket full of scissors and I have lots of scissors and I try not to get anything at a sale that I don't need. And I love to go to estate sales, but to keep from collecting a lot of crap, uh, I have a rule that I can't buy something unless I can use it. I have a specific purpose for it. And I saw this thing of scissors and I was 
enamored by it and I really wanted it, but they weren't great scissors and I had better versions of all of them. And I thought, I'm going to hold off. And they haunted me. And I said, I got to go back and get the scissors because I, I know what I can do with them. Just like using the butterflies, I can use scissors to make another version and it will, and then it just all started unraveling the, the, how it would play with the other piece and add depth to it. And so it's, it's a story that's, that's evolving. Um, and I went back and they were gone. The, the sale was gone. They, they weren't having the sale. Uh, of course, the idea did not die there. I couldn't let it go. So I got on eBay and after about two hours of searching through page after page after page of eBay, I ended up buying 1500 pairs of scissors. We have a positive connotation of this notion of uh, collective unconscious and these lips being this um, beautiful, subtle childhood experience of intimacy. And then you have this pair of lips that have the yang of that yin that has the potential, just like we all do with our lips, to be very aggressive or harmful or damaging. So to me, that that is really fascinating and fun to play around with those kinds of things. When you first see it, you don't see that it's all of these scissors combined together. It becomes an object in its own right. Mm -hmm. um, even if you don't identify the lips immediately in that form, you still see an object as a whole. So that sense of discovery is very important to me. You were very strong about what St. Petersburg and Pinellas County need in order to really become the arts community that they aspire to. Yes, I suppose I uh, I can be opinionated along those lines. <laughs> I do have I do have a, a lot of strong feelings, and and they come out of uh, a lot of passion for this community because it's a, a really wonderful city, the city of St. Petersburg and uh, Pinellas County. There, it's a great place to live, and I'm very proud and happy to call it home. And you came here specifically to do your sculpting here. Yes, I did. I'm here by choice. I moved my business down here about 12 years ago. I was in St. Louis, where I had been for about 15 years, packing up the studio. And I had the realization that the packing and the unpacking were the hard part. And the moving of the objects, it all was going on a truck one way or another. And whether it was across town or across the country, that was easy. So it created an opportunity, basically. And um, I, at the time, was doing a project on the East Coast and I rented a car and took three weeks and drove down the East Coast and fell in love with St. Petersburg. Was there something specific about it? Yeah, there was. Uh, there, were, there were many things specific about it. Um, I didn't make the decision lightly. I had a whole list of criteria, but the, the real determining factor was well, my good friend Bob Devin Jones, I think, has summed it up most succinctly, uh, and that is that St. Pete has magic dirt. There is, there is something special about this place that draws creatives. There is a disproportionate number of creative people in Pinellas County, and in particular in St. Petersburg, and we're all drawn here by some undefinable aspect of what it is to be here. I, I, I can feel that, that energy here, and it's very tangible. So tell us, if you will, a little bit about the Softwater Studio and what you're doing in the Arts District. Well, Softwater is a project that I started with my partner, Carrie Jadis. 
Carrie and I just got married, and she was looking for a new studio. She needed bigger space. Her business was growing, and the space next to my studio was available, and it was bigger than she needed. And we agreed that it would be a good idea because of our experience and, and knowledge of the arts community that there was a need there for studio spaces. So we took it upon ourselves to uh, embark upon a business venture of doing a little bit of work to build it out and uh, rent out some of the studios. And in the process of doing that, we had an event before we were finished building the studios out. And it was so much fun. And it was really exciting to see people in that space after, for years, that space had been sitting vacant and, and derelict. And to see it activated by creative energy was really, really cool. And we decided to hold off on building some of the studios and leaving a portion of the space open so that we would have a communal space for the artists that were there and a space that we could run programming through and create opportunity for ourselves and for other artists and really try to help grow the creative community. And that became very much the model home, so to speak, for a greater plan that evolved, which was for the Arts Exchange. The Arts Exchange is a project of the Warehouse Arts District Association. So the Warehouse Arts District Association represents the entire district overlay, which is a pretty big rectangle in that section of St. Pete. It runs from 1st Avenue North down to 10th Avenue South and from 16th Street out to 31st Street. That's the rectangle it is the district. Mm -hmm. And there's some overlap there with the Deuces. So we, we collaborate with them as well as the Grand Central District, which is that's that portion of Central that sits there as well. I had become president of the Warehouse Arts District Association. I was one of the founding board members. And we were a very small uh, arts organization at the time. And one of our primary goals was to help unify the artists in the community so that they could have a greater voice in dialogue with the municipality. And basically, you know, as an individual artist, you don't have a lot of voice when you're trying to talk to a city or county representation. But as a group of artists, you have a very strong voice. And also from a marketing perspective, one of the things that artists really struggle with is finding the budget and the wherewithal to actually be able to market your work so that you can expand your, your resource base. So those were some of the primary goals of the, the Warehouse Arts District Association. The community had already happened organically. There were, when I moved there 12 years ago, there were a small handful of artists. And over the years, more and more artists had moved into the neighborhood and a true community had evolved naturally, which is very important. To try and impose that sense of community is very difficult to make, make function effectively. So we just kind of put a name on it and tried to to gather and and focus some of the energy of the community and in doing so one of the first major projects was to start running a trolley the neighborhood's very very run down industrial base there was not a lot of infrastructure there it, it was very dark and uh, not the most inviting buildings and duncan mcclellan had moved to town and he had put together a marketing team that was using social media and really growing his numbers mm -hmm. and he was getting really good attendance for second saturday events and almost almost too good 
there were, there were so many people coming to these uh, uh, events that it was becoming dysfunctional. So we're looking at this as, at, as, as it was evolving and thinking, you know, what can we do to get all of this interest in creativity distributed to some of these other resources in this neighborhood that people don't know about? So we hired a trolley and um, we worked with the downtown partnership and initially it was the expense was borne on the backs of all of the different artists and arts organizations in the neighborhood and everybody paid a portion to cover the cost of the trolley and in in the big picture it was a significant success mm -hmm. and it evolved over the the coming years into a citywide trolley that helped promote the second saturday art walk and eventually the st petersburg arts alliance and john collins took over the responsibility of sponsoring finding sponsorship and marketing for the for the trolley but that was one of the the first accomplishments of the association for the warehouse arts district and in doing that we saw some major changes happening in the neighborhood and most of them were very exciting and very positive, but they, they, it was clear that they were going to lead to this path that we see happening in arts communities all over the country. Artists are inherently nomadic, and it's because of this scenario that plays out over and over again. Artists come in to run down parts of cities and because they're inexpensive. Mm -hmm. You can get inexpensive real estate. you got a big space to work in and uh, you have a creative freedom. And ultimately, that creative energy draws attention, as it did in the Warehouse Arts District. And once you draw that attention to things and people begin to take notice, development follows. And ultimately, the result of that development is prices go up and artists get pushed out. So we saw this beginning to happen and we thought we need to do something about this. What can we do about this? And the facility that my studio was in was the old Softwater Laundry facility. That's the name Softwater Studio. It had 50,000 square feet of warehouses on three acres and about 30,000 of that was sitting empty. And we approached with a plan to redevelop it. And he set aside some better offers because he believed in what we were doing. Wow, that's pretty powerful. Very powerful. The backbone of the project is sustainability for the arts community. It's studios. It's a, a affordable studios that can be rented for artists so that they have a place to work. I mean, it's critical for an arts community. You got to have a place to work, you know. We've got in, in the city um, a growing arts community in the county, an explosively growing arts scene, and we need artists here in order for that to have depth and have viability. All of this is a cohesive plan to bring more energy and attention and create a destination for the arts community within that part of town. So that's the, sort of the master plan for the entire district. The, the property that we have, we're building out in phases. So, mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're raising money and as not-for-profits go, we're, we're very successful. In the past two and a half years, we've raised a million dollars towards this, this project. Some of that's come from the state, some of it's come from the city, and some of it's come through private donation. The first phase of construction is 16,000 square feet that will bring 28 artist studios online. We've been building towards it for the past two years. We have officially begun construction. 
in the second phase, we'll be doing some larger studios, and that'll be another 10,000 square feet of space. Then the backbone of the Arts Exchange will be complete. The next thing that we're going to be doing, and we already have this underway, is educational programming that will give us a greater community outreach. We sit right on the edge of the Midtown area, and there's a lot of disadvantaged kids there, so um, we're putting together programming to, to help foster growth and, and community development. And we also want to create a, a sense of destination. So we're looking at some of the other pieces of property to possibly bring a restaurant onto the property. Something something where people can come and gather. That's critical to, to the master plan, uh, creating that sense of destination. We're really building community. Uh, it's been a, a really fascinating process for, for me as a sculptor to get involved in this side of, of creative uh, building creative placemaking is, uh, you know, public art is very much about creating a, a space, a unique space, a, a work that, that accentuates uh, a physical space, um, activates a landscape or a building, and that's very much what we're doing, only it's more on a, on a community scale. It's very important, I think, for for artists, for creatives to experience life. I mean, you, you can't just spend all your time in the studio although great things come out of that. And one of the, the biggest benefits for me of making commissioned work, and early on I did a lot of scenery and you know everything under the sun to keep the studio open. But for me, the process of creating, creative problem solving, how, are my, how am I gonna make this thing, was always incredibly stimulating. I take a lot of process shots as I'm making stuff because how we get things made is sometimes more cool than the object we're making. You know, that's very, very rewarding. Creating movement, the appearance of something that's kinetic through using static forms and linear, making linear elements look curved. To me, it's this, this interesting optical game that has to do with how we see the world that is really fascinating. I did a, a, a commission piece called Vertical Hum, and it was a series of vertical lines. Is actually, we used conduit, different sizes of conduit, and they were in three rows, and they had different spacings, and they each had slightly different angles, so that when you walked by the piece, the way that the the lines passed by each other, created the sense of movement and made the vertical lines look curved. As you walked by it, it looked just like wind on water. It's a really, wow. really interesting effect that it created. And that's one of those, I'm gonna try and do this and see what it does. Mm -hmm. And it was one of those, oh my God, that's so cool kind of things, instead of being, wow, that didn't work. The other thing that has always been incredibly inspiring is the the byproducts of the creative process, the the waste pieces, the things that get made inadvertently through trying to make something with intent, those things sit around the studio and you experience them. And early in my career, I did a large eagle for a bank and it had a 14 foot wingspan and we carved it out of urethane. These kinds of projects, I say we, they, they a team makes these things. I lead the team and we all work together towards a goal. So. We're carving this 14-foot eagle and pulling a mold off of it and then taking castings out of it. And every day during that couple-month period, it was absolutely exhilarating to walk into the studio because there are positives and negatives of these beautiful organic forms. And wings are another thing that I'm absolutely fascinated by. Here is this physical object that allows something of mass to take flight 
And it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. If you study the structure of a wing, oh my God, Mother Nature at its very best. I mean, there's an... There's some divine providence in that form. It's, it's absolutely inspiring to study and to, have, to be surrounded by all of these wings. One of the fascinating things about molds is you get negatives of things. So you get to see inside something or see it through a different view or perspective. And those kinds of experiences are, are really, really what keep me coming back. Artists often focus on this, this romantic notion of being in their studio and making their vision and doing everything they can to keep that vision from being imposed upon. The idea of the, the gallery guy who says, well, can you paint that in green instead of blue? And you, you hear about the client who wants it to match their sofa. Those kinds of, of limitations that can confine your perspective also expand your creative potential because they get you to solve problems in different ways. Some of the most creative things come out of the biggest challenges. The more confined you are by variables, the more creative your solutions become. So let's talk about that in a, in a real experience that you had with some work that you did. Well, it's it's inherent in, in virtually every project, in particular when you're trying to work with a concept and execute it to sustain 150 mile an hour winds and the corrosive effect of the salt in the sand that blows around in our breeze in this climate. Every every environment has its own series of, of restrictions and then you've got budget when you're dealing with commission work and you've got client expectations and all of those things are impinging upon your creative vision and if you can see the creative process as being finding the solutions to those challenges instead of realizing a clarity of vision all of those series of discoveries that you have through the process of making, every one of those has the potential to either be a lesson or to be that inspiration. It's a, it's a change of paradigm mm -hmm. at that point. You know, what is it that satisfies your creative need or your creative intention? I mean, it's wonderful if you can sit in your studio and make whatever you want, whenever you want, but I think it's a choice to find as much satisfaction from working through those challenges as being able to do whatever you want. You know, for me, it's all about being able to make. So whatever it is that allows you to do that, and if you can, if you can approach what you do with a perspective that gives you satisfaction, I don't see what it matters otherwise. I mean, for me, being an artist is not what you do, but how you do it. It's a way of experiencing life. It's a way of problem solving. It's a way of thinking. You don't have to be an object maker. You don't have to be a painter or a musician to be an artist. It's, it's a way of interacting with the world around you. So do you have a standard process, you know, that you do some sketches and then you do models and... Yes. Okay, can you walk us through that? I'm very analytical, so everything drops into the studio in the same way. There is, we, I call it plugging, it plugging it into the machine. So things can seem very intangible when you're first conceiving them. And I learned, and I actually learned the bulk of this process through working for the Seattle Opera, doing opera work, making scenery, the, the physical act of, of manifesting an idea in three-dimensional form, how to use a scale rule, 
what scale is in general, what, what a side view or, or an elevation, a front elevation, a side elevation, a plan view. Those technical processes are, are the very foundation of every project that comes into being. You know, everything starts with an idea or a glimmer, then it's manifest through a sketch and sometimes through a photograph, and then it has to be created. And that creative process is the same for every project. It gets rendered in two dimension in scale, sometimes rendered in three dimension. If it's a big budget project, if you're gonna spend $100,000 on something, you generate a scale model because what you learn from that scale model is something that you don't wanna to have to learn when you've got tens of thousands of dollars of material and tens of thousands of dollars of labor already spent. I still draft on an old fashioned drafting table. And the reason I do that is I do so much problem solving in that process and I'm afraid to let go of it. And we do a lot of computer generated work and you know, we work with CAD and we, we work with cutting plotters and, and all sorts of contemporary technology. But I'm working on a, a public art commission for a piece called Splash and there's a water splash and the reality of generating that piece is that someone somewhere has to create that object. So a sphere is very simple. A computer can create a sphere, but a splash of water, either you're rendering it in the computer or you're rendering it out of a material. And the fact of the matter is right now with contemporary technology, I can carve that thing out of a piece of urethane faster than a guy can render it in a computer and make it look convincing. And I can take photographs of, of uh, microscopic shots of water splashes and, and manifest that thing through carving skill that I've honed over 30 years. So I start with a hand carved object. Then I literally chop that up into slices and scan those slices into a computer. And then we have a version of that that now becomes digitalized. But it is that old fashioned process of manifesting that through medium or, or technique that has existed since the Renaissance that led to that contemporary usage of material and machinery. What happens next? How do you well, go from model so, to... So in a, in a traditional commission or public art piece, you've got to sell the thing. Okay, so you usually generate a model to sell the thing and you've got a concept or an idea and that model is a manifestation of that concept. It exists in idea form and in model form at that point. And in order to make that piece exist in real life, in full scale, it has to be engineered. Mm -hmm. So at this point, you have to look at a series of criteria and every state has its own requirements or engineering stamp so you have to have a stamp from an engineer from whatever state you're working in. And the reason for that is every state has its own consideration set for its variables for weather and, and so on and so forth. For example, here we have hurricanes, 150 mile an hour sustained wind is what you have to engineer for. And in Oklahoma, they have now fracking earthquakes, of course, but they also have horrible, horrible hail and tornadoes they'll get softball size hail. So there are certain material options that are just eliminated because of that. So you have to sit down with a structural engineer and you have to share your vision and communicate it successfully enough that they can run calculations that will allow that vision to be manifest in a manner that is similar enough 
to what your intent is to communicate your vision. And the more you know about engineering, the more you can visualize your concept through material, idea, and physical manifestation that is actually buildable. What kind of weld you need to use, what uh, metal specification, you know, all of those kinds of variables, how big the bolts are, how deep the footer is, how much cement there needs to be, how much steel needs to be in the cement, all of these kinds of building considerations to make sure this thing doesn't hurt somebody. So you have all that. And then you get started. Then you get started. How do you start? Um, well, you sign a contract. Okay. <laughs> when we start fabrication, the first thing that happens is the purchase of materials. We get startup money. You got a $100,000 project. You know, the bulk of that is front-ended in, in material and labor. You know, once you've got your structural engineering done, then you, you've got parts to produce. So either you're producing those parts or you're farming out some aspect of that work. For the piece I'm working on right now, it's $20,000 worth of aluminum and $10,000 worth of water jet cutting and figuring out who's going to do that work and finding the best price and and who you can communicate with and who you've got a good relationship with. And So let's talk, because you said a couple times that you work with a team. So how do you communicate with the team so that they're all working in alignment with the vision and they know what to do? Managing people is a unique skill set. And it's one I've learned not everybody has. And it's one that I've had to learn how to do. Because basically, you want those people to become an extension of your hands. I define tasks. Um, I identify tasks. Oftentimes, I'll perform that task and demonstrate it. And if I've got a guy who's been with me for a long time, I can just say, go do X. And he can go and do that. And I know exactly what I'm going to get back from him. And if I don't know him as well, or it's a process that is not as familiar, then I have to give more energy to that. And this all becomes about the distribution of energy. Energy is the greatest resource that you have. So how do you focus your energy and where do you put it? And you wanna be as efficient with your energy as possible. You would think that if you've got six people working for you, you get six times the level of production. That doesn't happen. If you've got two people working for you, you can triple your, double and a half your production maybe. But every time you add another person, the level of efficiency decreases because your ability to manage them decreases. And there are certain things that my hands have to touch. And there are certain things where I've got guys that are really, really good and they can do, they can do a lot of those things. So what are the things your hands have to touch? The carving is the biggest one. I, I am a carver. I think subtractively, and I trained myself how to do that at a very young age, and I'm very good at it. So I can have somebody remove a lot of the bulk material. This is how Michelangelo worked. If you think he removed every bit of marble that was not the David from that block of stone, you're kidding yourself. He had a team helping him mm -hmm. carve that piece, and they're removing big chunks of material using a technical process, and that technical process can be taught. My team can be very helpful and they're all committed to the same end goal, but I have to make it very clear that they're making my work. I'm using their creative ability, their physical ability, but they're executing my work. They can hone their skills, they can learn from the process, they can take away everything that they experience. There's a lot of opportunity in those walls. You're a job creator. In a small way, yes. You know, there it is a business. It's a business, it's generating revenue, and it's feeding the local economy. It's not a huge amount of money, but MGA brought uh, over $300,000 into this community in the, in the past year. 
there's there's something there for and a small if, business. That's it, pretty good. If you look at uh, you know all the different artists in this community that are bringing work in and, and buying resources and 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 employing people and feeding the community, it's it's tangible. And you meet people who get inspired by something and they tell you about something else and you investigate that and that creates ideas and you know it's just it's all a big a big uh, uh, pool of inspiration. Well, that's probably a perfect way to end this conversation. Thank you so very much, Mark Ayling, yes, for joining thank you us very today. Much, this is Barbara St. Clair, and you've been listening to Arts In, also known as AI, the Creative Pinellas Podcast. Sponsored in part by the Pinellas County Board of County Commissioners, visit St. Petersburg Clearwater and the State of Florida Department of Cultural Affairs. Arts In is produced by Matt and Sheila Cowley. You can find more conversations with visual, literary, and performing artists and in-depth arts journalism at creativepinellas.org. Thank you for listening.